This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with composer and contemporary classical pianist Sophie Hutchings, as well as float founder and Piano Day organiser Sophia Ilias. They both join me to discuss Piano Day, which is Wednesday the 29th of March this year. Piano Day is an annual worldwide celebration of the piano held on the 88th day of the year in reference to the 88 keys on a standard piano. Sophia explains the origins of Piano Day, while Sophie tells us about her process for composing piano works and recently how she reworked a piece by Oliver Arnolds. They both reflect on their favourite pianists and the role of Piano Day in engaging the local community in Melbourne, as well as the global community. It's really great to have your company today, and it's really great to have the company of two fabulous guests. I'm so excited to welcome onto the program Sophie Hutchings, who is an Australian composer and pianist, as well as Sophia Ilias, who is founder of Float and also the organiser of Piano Day. And she's been doing a terrific job of engaging us Melburnians and also those in London and others around the world in the excitement of Piano Day, which is tomorrow. Wednesday, the 29th of March. And the reason why it falls on that day in particular is that it's the 88th day of the year because it signifies the 88 keys on a standard piano. And as part of Piano Day here in Melbourne, there will be a special event which is hosted by Float in Brunswick at Tempo Rubato, which is a wonderful live classical music venue. Unfortunately for you, at the moment it's sold out. There is a waiting list available, but this is going to be on Sunday, the 2nd of April. It features Sophie Hutchings, who we're about to speak with, as well as Grace Ferguson and Evelyn Ida Morris. As I said, there are many other events taking place across the globe, including, of course, in London, in Trafalgar Square at the National Gallery, which is a gorgeous venue. And as well as that, there is a Piano Day companion album called Piano Day Volume 2 with 13 exclusive and previously unreleased piano tracks from people including Jan Tiersen and Caitlin Aurelia Smith and many, many more. So I've got to say I have played pieces from Piano Day Volume 1 before on this show, so those listening should be in some way familiar with Piano Day, even if you didn't know it. I've got to say this show has certainly played its fair share of contemporary classical piano pieces, so I know that this audience is primed for a conversation about Piano Day. So I welcome onto this show Sophie Hutchings. Hi there, Sophie. Hey, Amy, how are you going? I'm good, thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. And thank you and welcome to Sophia Ilias, who's joining us from London. Hi, Amy. Hi. Nice to be on the show. Great to have you. Great to have you both together for this conversation about Piano Day. I know that we have days for so many things. We've got World Poetry Day, which just happened recently. We've got World Puppy Day, which was also recent. But Piano Day does feel to me at least, as a very special day. And it also has a kind of interesting history. A lot of these days are usually set on the United Nations calendar as an, a global day, whereas this day came about in a different way. So I wonder if, Sophia, you could tell us about where this Piano Day came from and when it started. 
Yeah, sure. Um, it's quite a funny story. Um, it started in Nils Fram's kitchen in Berlin in his studio in Wedding, where he used to he recorded all of his earlier piano albums. And we were having a meeting around a new album that he just recorded, and he was telling us the background story of it, of how it was recorded on the world's tallest piano. Um, and we were all having a giggle, and we were like, "Of course, Nils, you know, you would do that." Um, and Nils was very passionate about the idea of building an even taller piano which was going to cost 140,000 euros in total. Cool. Um, yeah, um, his idea was to give away the album for free that he'd recorded, and he wanted to raise money um, through donations to build this piano. Um, and as his PR, and uh, at the time I was co-running his label as well, um, he asked me, you know, what day do you think we should release this on? Um, he'd already released two albums, so I was a bit like, oh, how are we going to build a narrative around this one? Um, and I'd said, um, how about we, we pick a day to align it with? Um, and Neil said, oh, let's just do it on piano day. Just we all assumed it existed when he said it. And we were so surprised when we searched online that it didn't exist. And we all looked at each other and were like, shall we do it? Like, shall we just launch a piano day? Um, and that's how it started. What an amazing thing. That is insane. And it makes me think about I'm very curious to know just how tall the world's tallest piano is right now. Do you know? I think the original one was over seven feet tall. Um, and the current one, I'm not sure. I have actually stood on it. It sits in Nils's um, studio and I can confirm I had to climb up a very long ladder to get to the actual <laughs> place. But it's an incredible piano because the strings go, you know, upwards and they're huge. So you just hit one note and it just resonates so much and just creates such a strong sound. And if you want to hear it, it's um, his album Solo. You'll hear that incredible sound of that piano. Oh, wow. That's so inspiring to hear that this day has been created and that there was, there was this kind of gap. I'm also shocked that there wasn't a piano day because, as I said, you know, we've got puppy days and poetry mm. days. Piano has been around for such a long time. This is a an absolutely vital instrument that's also so flexible, I guess, in the ways that you can use it and it comes in many shapes and forms, as we've just heard. I'll bring in Sophie here because it feels like a good time, Sophie, to talk about pianos and your relationship to pianos, especially the pianos that you own. And I did see a little video that you put up about your studio, which is kind of like a, a garage that you've kitted out and the Yamaha pianos that you've got. Could you tell us about your relationship to the pianos that you have now and even, you know, your relationship to the piano when you first came across it? Yeah, I think... <sighs> Pianos are really interesting because I almost find them to be like forming a relationship with a human being. They're very, they've all got their own characteristics, personalities. They have their mood swings like humans as well. So you've kind of got to befriend them. And, you know, I didn't start on, start out on some grand piano, the, the piano that we had growing up. My father used for writing arrangements. I don't even remember the brand. Um, and over the years, of course, when you're touring in various countries, just you're, you're playing on so many different pianos. I've recorded on different pianos. And I guess it's a really interesting challenge because you, you learn that. I guess that's the interesting thing about pianos which are so unique to other instruments other instruments are used with breath or vibration whereas piano it's a very 
it's a very physical, communicative relationship with the piano, which for people who play piano or haven't, it's it's very it's a very engaging human aspect. You're you're going by feel and touch, and I guess if you think of the whole the original name of the piano, piano forte, which we a lot of us know means soft, loud. You've got this incredible range and sound. So I've played on many, um, and the ones that I currently have now, I have two Yamahas, which are incredibly beautiful instruments, but they have their own personalities too. My one at home is quite different to my one in my studio. Um, but you have really, really different experiences. You don't carry around your own instruments. So I've gotten to get to know a lot of pianos over the years, recording environments. I've played some very challenging pianos, but out of that always becomes a really interesting experience. And I think Sophie will agree um, from a lot of Niels's experiences as, as well is embracing it's almost like on my last solo piano album, um, a quote I made was it's almost like you're diving into the lungs of the piano. When you're experimenting with, say, felt piano, you really hear a lot of the internal characteristics of the piano, so it's almost like hearing it breathe. That's something that Niels really embraces, which makes it a really intimate personal experience, which I think is another thing that, really differentiates the piano from other instruments and it's become quite alternative in its approach in recent years. Mm, yeah, you pick up on that point, which I was actually going to ask about anyway. So, you know, when you hear some of these more contemporary recordings, you can hear the sound of the key moving or sliding up and down. You can hear the hammer sometimes as well. Like it does feel that there's as you say, this kind of intimacy and you can see the mechanisms and the movement of the actual instrument in your mind's eye when you're listening to some of these because obviously there must be a number of microphones mic'd up to make that effect. But could you explain to us how, as a composer, you might incorporate or think about the way that you use the piano in its many different forms, not just its typical sounds that are made but it's also its mechanical sounds? Mm, well, I guess... Now that we're talking about felt piano, because it's become hugely popular, not that, I mean, some people think it's a more recent discovery, but it, it actually originates right back from the classical period. You know, people like Beethoven and Mozart were actually dabbling around with felt piano, but people like Chili Gonzalez and, and Niels Fram made it like huge. And now it's used in films for film scores a lot, but I guess for me personally, it's it's not something I purposely think about. It all depends on the piano. And in, and in time, say, for instance, my last solo piano album, which was all felt piano, um, I actually, which is very typical of me, I, I go into the dark um, as far as, like, I drove all the way to this remote location in the back Byron hinterland I'd never played this piano. I hadn't met met the piano before. I say that because I always find pianos almost very like a relationship. And when I first met the piano, she was very old, very charismatic. And when I first started playing her, I was kind of like, oh, what have I done to myself? It was very, very different, challenging. But when you turn that challenge into something uh, – an artistic venture 
all those sounds that you're talking about, Amy, become like part of the art, part of the journey, part of the sound. That I remember my A&R manager at my record label once saying, it's almost like craniosacral therapy, you know, where you're having your, your head, head massage. I don't know if I'm going off on a weird tangent here, but there is something very engaging and personal about it. And I wanted to turn that sound and that experience into the whole part of the experience, the sound of that piano breathing and hearing and um, you literally are inside. It's not like just hearing music. It's it's a whole experience. And I think people really enjoy that because it's very intimate and very personal. So there's just, and these days, there's just so many different approaches. Like you've got people like um, John Cage to people like Hauschkenau who are really amazing in dabbling with prepared piano, which I've actually done a little bit of myself, which is all about, you know, using foreign objects. It could be, you know, Hauschka uses ping pong balls and gaffer tape and creating different sounds with the piano. So I think whether it be approaching it from just a very heartfelt traditional approach to experimentation, it's just, it's such a broad scope in the way you can hear it. Yeah. Oh, thank you for taking us into your world a little bit there, Sophie. Sophia, I want to also draw you into that part of the conversation around your relationship and interest in piano. Obviously, there's a professional component there because you've been working with musicians and artists in your job at Float and also before that. But also, you know, I see that you have been presenting it on Soho Radio and clearly you have your own appreciation of piano works personally as well. So could you tell us a little bit about what piano has meant to you? Yeah, all through my life, I always knew I wanted to do something with music, but I didn't have any music education. I also didn't have any education in PR or marketing or anything like that. Um, but I kept coming across piano players and it started with Nils and I started to see others that I just felt were so incredible. I just knew there was something in me. I just knew that sound was different to other things out there. Um, and the more I got to know the artist, the more I could see that there wasn't much representation for them. Um, so I just took a risk. I moved to Berlin um, and I moved there to be closer to Nils. And at that time, there was, you know, Dustin O'Hara and there was Hauschka, who Sophie mentioned earlier on, who's just won an Oscar for Best Film. Um, there was Johan Johansson. There were so many incredible artists um, who now everyone knows and knows their names. So back then they didn't. Um, and somehow something inside of me just said, you need to work with them. You need to help them get their music out there. And that's how my journey started. It started with Nils and then came in Dustin and all the other artists. And, you know, it didn't happen overnight. It took three solid years of working really, really hard. I remember, you know, um, that you were talking earlier on about microphones and things like that. Um, Nils's album felt that he recorded because his neighbors were really annoyed with him playing piano. So he had no choice but to mic up his piano in the evening and then play it through that way so he could hear the sound back. And I remember sending it to a journalist and not hearing back from anyone. And then one said, oh, I really like this album in a way that it helps me fall asleep. Ha ha ha. And I was just heartbroken. I was yeah. just like, you know, so heartbroken. But you know, I kept at it, I kept at it. And then right around the three year mark, something just started changing. People started opening up. And I think that was driven a lot by the younger generation, people like me who 
didn't know much about classical music, but knew we liked the sound of the piano. And I think this type of music became an entrance for people like me. And uh, it wasn't so harsh and stiff, um, like maybe some classical music can come across as or too scary to be um, close to. And I think Nils and other artists like him opened that door. Um, and I just felt like I owed them something in, you know, helping them get their music out there. And I'm just fortunate. I feel honestly like every day I feel so lucky. I, I can't even believe the event on Friday is happening at the National Gallery. I, I still don't believe it actually <laughs> is happening. Because, um, you know, I come from a Pakistani, very working class family in Cardiff in Wales, where not much happens. Mm. Um, so for me to look back at the last 10 years, it's just been incredible and surreal. And I pinch myself all the time, you know, that I'm yeah, able to do this and be in this position and, and help piano players. So, yeah, I want to do it for the rest of my life if I can. Oh, I'm so glad you decided to, Sophia, because we've benefited greatly from it. Out of curiosity, do you know which room it is in at the National Gallery? Yes, it's in room 34, putting the piano right in the middle of that room. And from the distance in the next room, you can see Monet. Um, wow. But yeah, room 34. Oh, I did. I really loved going to the National Gallery when I was in London. So, yeah, I, I can't even imagine the idea of having a live concert in there, like with a piano. It's going to be amazing. Are you going to be filming it? Uh, yes, we will be filming it. And I, I think something that a lot of people don't know is that during World War II, all the paintings in the gallery were um, removed and there was nothing there besides empty frames. And a composer and piano player, Myra Hess, started playing free concerts there. I think she did something like incredible number of concerts, maybe 5,000 or something. And they used it as an opportunity to also give food to the community. And at the time, it was the only music happening in London and it became really quite significant at the time and I think a lot of people don't know that story that yeah the gallery does have a link to the piano as well and I think probably there's a piano story in all of us somewhere um so yeah I feel it feels right to be doing this there that's amazing yeah I just um quickly checked room 34 to jog my memory and it's the constable Turner and Gainsborough room and next door there's David, Fragonard, Vernet, Hogarth and British painting and, as you say, Monet. So, wow, it's going to be in the room with the Haywayne as well. So, you know, this is a very special room in art historical sides as well. It's great to see the combination of art and music so beautifully come together. We'll talk about the Melbourne event in a moment's time, but I wanted to go back to you now, Sophie, to talk about the piece that we heard just before this conversation. So we heard there a rework that you did of an Oliver Arnold song, Still Slash Sound, which is one of his recent pieces. And this is very recent, the rework that you've done. And many different pianists were invited to rework his pieces, including Hani Arani and Lambert, who are some of my absolute favourites as well. And I wanted to understand from you as to how you approached a rework of someone else's work and in particular this piece obviously being a composer yourself you know what were some of the approaches or ways that you thought about it when you were given this chance to do it and how did you record it yeah it's interesting when whenever you're approaching a rework I mean first of all when Alpha asked me I'm like oh this isn't my piece like how am I going to do this and because 
composers, when they write music, it comes from such a personal place. So my first instinct was I want to do something that pays homage to to the personality and intimacy of Oliver's music but put a genuine slant on it from myself. And Steel Sound is very different in that um, I've always gravitated to really repetitive music. I always find it very mindful and hypnotic. So I really love that piece and the way he builds on that repetition and then layered all the strings in. And so when I approach a rework, most of it, most of the time is actually pottering around and listening to it over and over again. And then once I sit at the piano, that's when I disengage. I actually don't think about it and just let it kind of evolve on its own, if that makes sense. And so I just spend a bit, I think it came from a subconscious place because I really wanted it to come from a genuine place. And so um, I guess I wanted to incorporate the melody of these beautiful strings that gradually come in as well. So I kind of used, and that's the beauty of the piano too. It's got so many different voicings. So I was able to incorporate both in the one instrument because um, Oliver, when I spoke to him, it was very much based on, he really wanted it to be very piano centric. Not that it all turned out that way because he gave the artist freedom, free reign, um, but I really wanted to stick within that scope. And so I, um, it's a funny story actually, because I was sort of dabbling around with it. And then we had a crazy sudden, um, natural disaster strike the the coastline of our area and um, all the electricity was out and I had to get this piece in within the next week and I was like, oh, what if the power doesn't come on? And it came on at about 10.30 one night so I just jumped in the car, raced up to my studio and literally just spent the whole night recording. So it was from like midnight and then by 4.30 a.m. I messaged my label and Without me even mixing it, they sent it to Oliver, which I was mortified. I was like, don't send it to Oliver yet. I haven't mixed it. But he loved it. And then, yeah, so it was a very organic approach. It was very based on a lot of feeling, which is always my approach. I try not to overthink it, and and but there was a lot, it's a lot of listening and then letting the body disengage and, and the mind disengage. And it's all about feeling, which I think is very much why people love piano, whether that, that be the composer or the listener. Yeah, that's so true. It's it's very evocative. It's meditative. It it can offer you a, a place that you probably can't reach yourself just by yourself. So, you know, the music is very transporting. It gives you a new space for your mind to sit in, I think, as a listener personally. That's a really interesting observation because I always find if someone's talking to me about it, I always find it a really hard thing to explain. I almost feel like piano is the, like I have a split personality because when it comes to piano, it's a very introverted side of me. It's almost like you just go into this other world that you you kind of can't explain. It's, a, it's just an experience. It's a feeling. And I, I guess that's what's so beautiful and expressive about it. It's it's the more introverted side of me because I'm certainly not shy, but what, when it comes to music, I always have tended to be quite shy. And I think it's because it's such an expressive, communicative sort of instrument and it expresses and, and unifies everyone because it's almost like this 
universal language. It doesn't matter what language you speak globally. It brings everyone together. And I think the amazing work that Sophia has put into Piano Day, it's really made it into this huge community where people of all different scopes of life, whether you be a beginner, an advanced player, um, and no matter what kind of piano you play, everybody to some extent can be involved on any level. Yeah, well, you've perfectly segued into my next question for Sophia, so thank you, Sophie. (laughs) Not intended. (laughs) Yeah, no, it was really well done because it, it takes me to community engagement, Sophia, and your work in Melbourne. I know we're speaking to you from London, but you have certainly been doing some amazing work in Melbourne here with Piano Day and, of course, around the world as well, as Sophie was mentioning. So I wonder, could you tell us and take us through some of the ways that you've been engaging not only adults like myself, but also kids as well, you know, all types of people, like Sophie was saying, in Piano Day here in Melbourne? Yeah, I think... You know, when I did the first event, it was during COVID and there was a bit of a gap where things opened up. Um, And I remember talking to a friend and and kind of moaning, oh, I'm stuck in Melbourne. Um, And there's, you know, I won't be doing piano day. And they were like, just do one in Melbourne. And I'm like, but I don't know Melbourne at all. Like, I I really didn't. Um, And one thing that really struck me about that first event and I didn't even realize is the amount of emotion that was there on that day. Um, people saying, you know, it's the first time I've been in a room for a year with other people. First time I've been, you know, to a music show in over a year. Um, and I really felt there was just something there that that piano show was giving. And there was a lot of people in tears as well. Um, and I think, you know, for the second event and, and also for all events, I've always tried to use um, local kind of people in terms of just the drinks or, or anything that's on display for that piano event. Um, last year, for example, we had Sahel Rowe, who's a painter. He was painting live from scratch while the um, the uh, music was being played. Um, and for me, that's a really important part of my Piano Day events that I try and bring in other creatives as well. Like I have a lot of dance as well. Um, this year, for example, um, it's in Albans North Primary School. Um, the kids there aged eight to nine. I asked if they could provide us drawings while they listen to the piano and some of the drawings that I come across actually all of the drawings um, are just amazing and incredible and I was told the kids really enjoyed the activity um, and I'll be showing that those pieces of art um, on the day and asking people in the evening to also write messages back to the students and saying how great their art is so we can send that message back um, but community whether it's in London or in Melbourne is always yeah been important to me to involve the community as much as possible possible um, and to give artists a platform that you know may not have a space that really suits them Um, but one thing I found in Melbourne is that there's such a desire for things like this Um, you know only a couple of months ago I was not thinking about doing a piano day this this year in Melbourne but I got so much support and emails coming through saying you know please do it we're on the ground we can help you you know you have to do this and the fact that it's sold out so fast I think shows that there's a real appetite for it in the community. And if I can facilitate that, then I'm, I'm so happy to do that, even from London. Yeah, it's amazing. It just goes to show the connections between our two cities. They are strong. And I know there's plenty of Australians even over in London as well. So, yeah, yeah it's a really, really interesting connection. 
One of the great aspects, as you say, is the events that are put on. And as you said, this event with Sophie Hutchings, who we're speaking with here now, as well as Grace Ferguson and Evelyn Ida Morris, that one has sold out. But, you know, what are some of the reasons why you picked these particular artists? You know, and what do you admire about their works? I always tend to have artists in the back of my mind that I kind of park um, and I try and build the event around that one artist. So last year that was Luke Howard. Um, This year that was Sophie. Um, You know, I've always wanted Sophie for an event, but I always wait for the right moment and the right feeling. And this year I really felt like it was a Sophie event that that I wanted it to be. Um, And from there came in uh, Grace, who I've been wanting to book for years, but she's always been busy. Um, and then uh, uh, Blackbird Ventures, who always really support the events and a lot of their staff come, they kindly sent me a whole list of artists that I should look at. Um, and Evelyn just really struck me and I thought, oh, she's the perfect accompaniment to Sophie. So, yeah, usually it starts with one key artist that I have in mind and then I build the event around them. Yeah. And this event is also in a special space. So you've got the National Gallery in London, but you've also got Tempo Rubato here in Brunswick, which is very close by to Triple R, which is in Brunswick East. And it is very much a classical venue. This is a really special place. And I know that the organisers are also doing great work to make it a a highly ventilated space, a COVID safe space for people to attend live music venues, which does matter still to many people. And it's also just a really amazing thing to have such a, a kind of classical music specific venue. Could you tell us a little bit about Tempo Rubato and their role in this day as well? Yeah, I think, you know, doing an event from a distance, you really want to feel like you have a lot of support from the venue. And Tempo Roboto, like from the offset, were just so positive about the event and were so helpful. You know, and I'm there worried about who's going to be on the door and who's going to do the bar and da da da. And they're just like, don't worry about any of that. Like, we're going to be taking care of it. And then looking more into the venue and seeing that they donate, you know, so much of their funds to charity and to help towards, you know, people learning piano. I was just like, oh, my God, this is the perfect fit. Like they're doing so much in the community. And at the same time, they're offering me so much help as well. Um, And I think it's the same when I'm booking an artist or booking a venue. You just immediately feel the flow and a connection and energy and you're like, okay, this is the right thing for me. Um, And I immediately felt that Tempo Roboto, the staff there are just so helpful. Um, And up until a week ago, I wasn't actually planning to come to the event. I was just going to leave it all to them. So, but I am happy I'm going to come now. But um, yeah, they've just been incredible. And I think, you know, the fact it's sold out so quickly has a lot to do with them as well. And they're all organization and help as well. And it's great because you can even become a member of Tempo Rubato. And it's also lovely to see that they're giving residencies for artists to, you know, explore their works and also bring in other guest artists to perform with them. So it's a really, really interesting venue. And for those who aren't familiar with it, they can find them on social media or temporubato.com.au. Now, going back to Sophie Hutchings, Sophie, I know it's a a really cool thing. It must be for any musician to perform live, but I did see in your Instagram post that you said you don't often get to do that. And I wonder how you're approaching this performance on Sunday, April the 2nd, and how you see live performances for yourself as a pianist and a composer. (laughs) Yeah, well, this is an interesting one. This has probably got to do with my split personality as well because 
I've always been the class clown, but when it came to performance and piano, I, from a very young age, desperately shy. You could get me singing into the hairbrush or the vacuum cleaner and dancing around, but always, always so, so shy and timid when it came to piano. So I guess it was actually a choice thing. Um, And over the years, anyone who's read any press or interviews with me, I readily and wholeheartedly admit that, you know, in the early stages, you basically had to kick me onto stage. I just, I just never wanted to do it. I love the recording environment. I love writing and composing, but that was a part of me that I really have always had to fight. Um, But my passion for, for music alone and piano mostly, um, as it slowly and gradually took off and became my career, I really started to cherish the feedback I was getting from my audience. And I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for my listeners. And just as, as it started to reach more globally, I really started to place a huge value on that. And no matter how nervous or timid I get about performing, I always want to make sure I do that because there's a real reward. There's something very special and incredible about that connection with your listeners. You can't explain it. But having said that, I haven't performed since COVID. COVID was terrible for me. It 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 was good in that I loved the break from performing. I, but it's also taken me back to that fear and 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 having to overcome performing in front of people. But thanks to Sophia, um, this is going to be my first performance since oh, forever. I haven't been in Melbourne since I think 2019 when I was at the Castle Main Festival, which was an incredible performance that I did a double bill with um, a lot of people might know um, Federico Albanese, who's on the same record label as me. And, yeah, so it's it's heading back in. But I think for Piano Day my approach I feel it, I feel it's very timely for it to be organic in approach and especially with the type of venue that Tempo Rabato is. It's, I really want to embrace the organic element of the piano. So as much as I love dabbling with other instrumentation and other sounds, I always tend to always go back to the purity of the piano and the essence of the piano itself. And that's what this night is going to be all about. It's, it's a very intimate, it'll be a very intimate performance. And I want the audience to feel that I want it to be very personal and, and I'd like to engage and talk to the audience afterwards. I want it to be basically like sitting in a big comfy lounge room, like you're visiting your grandmother's place as a child or something like that. (laughs) I think it will have that vibe. I'm just feeling like not only is Tempo Rubato very laid back, but also, you know, a beautiful place, a beautiful space. But I think Melbourne audiences, to me at least, seem very polite and friendly and supportive. So yeah. I've I think, always had that experience. So I'm definitely yeah. looking forward to seeing my uh, fellow Melbournians. Yay. <laughs> Great that you're – I'm so glad you're coming and that Sophia is going to be there. What yeah. an amazing thing. <laughs> I wanted to ask both of you a question that I'm really curious about and it's great that we have three fabulous people in this lineup. And I know that, for example, in the music industry in general and even in the classical, and I'm thinking more traditional classical music industry, 
it certainly has been quite male dominated over centuries. And, you know, in the recent times, we've seen so many prominent women making their names, including you, Sophie. But I wanted to get a sense from both of you as to what it's like. Are there difficulties still or barriers for women and non-binary people to enter this space of recording contemporary classical pieces, becoming a composer in this space, or for you, Sophia, promoting their works? And also, of course, you know, the other intersections that come with that, including race and sexuality. So I might start with you, Sophie, and then go to Sophia. Do you know, definitely I would say yes, but I wouldn't have originally said that in the early days. I think um, I know Sophia did a post recently on International Women's Day and I really related to what she said in that she said she never really thinks about her gender. I, I never did. Growing up, I grew up um, two, four siblings, two girls, two boys. It was never about what you were. It was about what you did and what you created. So I had parents that were very much about it's just all about who you are, not what you were born as. But the longer I'm involved in it, the more I'm realising as a female, it, you definitely, it, it's not directed at you and it's 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 not like people do it pers- like purposely. But I think over the years, stemming from whether it be the caveman era, it's, I feel like it's almost been built into people and that it's just taken very, very long time to break down. And I just know personally, and I'm not saying this broadly, but even in a studio environment, you do get a lot of mansplaining or if you're confident or capable at what you do, sometimes that makes the male feel, I don't know how to explain it because I don't want to be generalising, but I have to say that the longer I'm in it, the more I know that women really have to fight to be equal. I think it's just a natural thing that people feel more comfortable just going for the male stereotypical um, and and they outnumber us as well. Mm -hmm. So I take my hat off to all of us who really have to, we we have to actually work extra hard to do what we do. Um, But I I try not to think about it because I don't want to feel any kind of, because there is a huge, a lot of support towards women too. And I just embrace that. And I think very much about what Sophie was saying on International Women's Day, that I never think about it. I just am who I am, but you can't help be, slightly aware of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it certainly can make itself more obvious in the awards and recognition that is given out as well, because there's a lot of unconscious bias in that process. Yeah. Uh, Sophia, what about you? And especially, you know, you mentioned there you have a Pakistani background as well. Have you experienced kind of any sense of barriers when you were trying to get into this industry and to support the brilliant pianists that you really admired? Yeah, I think um, in the beginning, I definitely felt very out of place in Berlin, surrounded by people who didn't often look, well, actually no one looked like me. Um, And being a woman in that space, a a space that already exists, you know, it's existed for many, many years that you're entering into and you're wanting to have some form of an impact. And someone like me who had no background in music, uh, I definitely had to work very hard to understand, you know, the technical side of, of music. And it took a while for my opinion to be you know valued um but I was willing to put the work in and I didn't want to sort of just 
sit there and complain about about something that had already existed for years and I couldn't change overnight. So I worked really hard on learning and also aligning myself on, you know, the men who were great at teaching me and helping me. And there's so many of them out there that are willing to help you. Um, So I always focused on that side. Um, Like Sophie said, like I'm definitely someone that focuses on being me. I had to work really hard to be where I am right now as Sophia. Um, so it's something I'm very attached to. Obviously, I, I am aware of gender. Um, and it's something that I, you know, try and incorporate in all my lineups. Um, but it's not always easy. So as an example, um, during my five years at Erase Tapes, I think I there was only one demo ever sent by a woman to the label. And I always wondered why, yet there were so many men who would email in and say, you know, I'm I'm amazing, I'm the next Neil Strom. And it wasn't just sending in music, but being very bold and, and sort of, yeah, singing their own praises, um, but never a woman. Um, and I remember sitting at a talk once and they were talking about a charity that they'd created a fund for women. And they said that the women just didn't apply and when they asked women why they hadn't and they said, oh, it's because, you know, I, I didn't think it was for me or I'd get the funding and, and things like that. So I think there's a lot more going on than just, you know, creating an event or creating a funding. There's also education that needs to happen and giving the confidence to women that they do deserve to be on the stage and they do deserve to have that fund. Um, I know for many years, I didn't feel like I deserved to be in the space. You know, it took a long time for me to get that out of my head that, you know, my opinion was valuable and I could put on an event like Piano Day. But yeah, I'm hoping, you know, just through doing what I do, and I'm sure Sophie feels the same, that just by being visible, that will inspire other women. Um, You know, like, I have to say, like, there is a big difference between London and Melbourne. Like in London, there's so many people of colour that I can approach to be at an, an event like Piano Day. Um, I struggle in Melbourne to find that it, it's not the same. Um, so yeah, there, there's challenges everywhere, and I just hope in doing something positive like a piano day event, you know, people can go, oh, there's a Pakistani woman on stage or South Asian woman, and oh look, there's um, you know Sophie who's an amazing composer, like you know, being as good as Anil's from, and and that in itself can hopefully inspire other women. Oh, so beautifully said. I really do do agree, and especially reaching out through the primary school like St Albans North is another great way to open up the minds and the possibilities of kids who may not think that this is potentially something that they could do because, you know, you can't be what you can't see, as they all say. I wanted to finish out this conversation talking about what we love, and I guess feel free to gush over whoever and whatever you love about the piano. But when I was making a list of all of my favourite artists who work on the piano, it was getting really long. (laughs) And I realised how many I've played on this show as well. Um, So I... I might wait till the end to give mine because maybe you'll cover mine anyway. But I wanted to ask for both of you, who inspires you, whether it is a composer from centuries ago and or composers now, pianists now, across any genre using the piano, who are the types of people who get you excited artistically or personally or emotionally about music and the piano? And I'll go to you, Sophie. Oh, I was hoping you would go to Sophia. Ah. I always find it a really, really hard question because 
music to me is such a a personal adventure that I I almost feel like my inspirations come accidentally through just pure observation through all our senses, whether that be an emotion we feel from a book we've read, a film, our our environment. I spend a lot, a lot of time. I'm a very outdoors person. I think experiences, but I also hugely listen to music 24-7 if I'm not playing music and I guess growing up it's funny because my background isn't really classical my father is um from the jazz world very jazz or die um and then my other siblings it was all indie rock and folk music but I always gravitated towards instrumental piano and I I guess I will probably if I had to say the first two very um, formative years of my discovery would be incredible Estonian composer Arvo Pert. And what I love about him is his approach to music in itself in that I remember reading once that he said it's not how much you play, it's about how you play. And that had a real effect on me because as quite a, you know, when it comes to music, I'm a complete crybaby. I get so emotionally affected by it. And his music does that to me. It doesn't matter how many times I listen to his piece, Feralina. It just, I feel mm. the, the tears welling in my eyes, the lump in my throat. And it's, it's just a very simplistic piece, but to play it the way he does is just so incredibly moving. And so I think that's what it all stems back to. To me, it's how things are felt and played. And that's where when I hear musicians, whether it be going back to people like Brian Eno or Eric Satie or um, another band that a lot of people actually probably don't even hear about anymore, who I discovered in my very formative early years, was a band called The Rachels. And it was led by a female composer, Rachel Grimes, who's an incredible pianist from um, the States, And their music is just incredible. They were kind of like a chamber orchestra and they came from a very indie rock background, which is how I discovered them. And so I would say that's where my composer years come from, where I felt like, you know, I was always writing and composing music, but the music I was surrounded by was very noisy jazz or indie rock. So I actually didn't know where my compositions were coming from because they were so unlike my family environment. But then when I started listening to the Rachels, it was like an epiphany, like, wow, there's a whole world out there. And that's when I started scrambling to discover new composers. And 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 like Sophia was saying, back in the day when Niels Fram, Peter Broderick, Dustin O'Halloran, all these composers, it was such a small community that um, I was a part of back then. It wasn't like what it's now. It's exploded, which is which is quite beautiful now because it's huge and and when people listen to it, I think uh, Sophia will agree as to she explained it really beautifully before how it just it 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 appeals to such a broad audience. When I look out to my audiences when I'm on tour, I've never seen such an eclectic audience. It can be ten year olds, it can be tattooed punks, it can be ninety year olds. It's just it's because people really really relate and feel towards the music. Yeah. Oh, I totally agree. And Feralina, I can, uh, I can relate to choking up over that one. Oh, I do all the time. Just thinking <laughs> about it, I get a lump in my throat. <laughs> yeah. I just found a version of it that the ACO played in, I think it was Mountain, the film. So I might play that one 
if we have time after this interview, Sophie, just for you. Um, And Sophia Ilias, could you talk to us about, you know, your influences and the people who inspire you when it comes to the piano? Yeah, I think um, growing up, Radiohead were always such a big inspiration for me. And, you know, you'd hear those little delicate little bits of piano behind a track and it's always that moment that would like really move you. Um, And even recently, just listening to some of Tom York's track where it's just his voice and the piano and they just combine, just make such an incredible sound. So that was where my sort of piano journey started. Um, I think looking back, you know, Thelonious Monk, I'm, I'm a big fan of his and the story of him and, you know, his partner and how much she supported him in his career. Um, and I also love Jill Scott Horan and some of his, you know, piano uh, tunes as well and his lyrics. And I think I've always had a like for piano with vocals. Um, but yeah, I think everyone would kill me if I didn't say Nils Fromm. Um, <laughs> you know, He'll you know, like, kill you as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah he, he would kill me. Um, you know, just remembering back to when I first saw him play live and we didn't know each other and um, he played to, I think, 50 people in London and they booked the wrong hotel um, dates for him and I just went, oh, you can stay at mine. <laughs> so it was him wow. um, and Anna Muller, yeah, a cellist player. Um, they stayed at mine before they had to head to the airport because my, my place was on the way to the airport. And we just stayed up all night and he was just so passionate, so passionate about what he wanted to do, where he wanted to be. And I remember him saying, like, I want to be a world known piano. And he kind of like put his hand on my shoulder and he was like, are you on this journey with me? And I was like, yeah, I'm in, I'm in, you know, and like, you know, and then seeing him like just play more and more was just like so drawn. And I didn't know what I was doing or why I was there, but I just knew I wanted to be there. Um, and just him just opening up his, like his whole world. And, you know, in terms of what we were speaking about earlier on about, you know, coming into these environments, like I would just ask every, what I would consider silly question at the time, like, why do you have monitors on stage and why are they facing you? What are they doing? And he always, you know, would tell me and and give me the answer to all my questions and, and was happy to do that. And I learned so much from him, not just about, piano playing but about the behind the scenes that a lot of people don't see um you know his sound checks go on you know sometimes for five hours um and he just wants to prepare that piano so perfectly so I learned a lot from him about that and about production side which really you know I still use today and I can impress all the guys with (laughs) um but yeah, no, I'd say, yeah, I, I, it has to be Nils Fram for me. And, you know, even I, I think I feel very special because every time I listen to a lot of his music, I know the behind, you know, the story behind it. Um, and it might be like, oh, I remember sitting in the corner of the room while he played that. Or I remember what he was thinking when he did this because he's a very emotional player. Um, whereas, you know, Oliver Arnolds will tell you he's very much like, I know this this track will make someone cry, whereas Nil is crying during his track. You know, it's two different styles of playing. Um, but, yeah, that, that's my answer. Oh, that makes so much sense. Shout out to Nils for doing that yeah. and, you know, coming up with Piano Day uh, with you guys in the kitchen as well. I saw that he actually created a Piano Day playlist on Spotify I was looking at some of the songs he recently added uh, and one of them was yours, Sophie, called Promise of Sun. So I've decided to play that after this interview. So if I'm talking about people who inspire me, that would be you, Sophie, 
thank you so much. <laughs> oh, it's my pleasure. I really do love your work. I love that you know we have Australians doing this amazing work and being an inspiration globally as well. Yeah, but um, it's so small. There's not many of us artists in the industry. I mean, mm. I Luke and I and a few others. Um, obviously, the, um, you know our lineup that Sophia's beautifully set up. But yeah, it's quite small here in Australia and. I'm speaking with Sophie Hutchings and Sophia Ilias. Unfortunately, there was a rare, accidental and unknown, at the time, musical interruption from another studio which aired over our conversation for the next 45 seconds. Due to copyright reasons, we can't play this section, so I'll relay what happened in the 45 seconds that we've missed here. As you heard, Sophie was just saying that Piano Day in Australia is quite small here, but they're trying to build on that. Sophia agrees, and she says, I was thinking the other day, I hope we can inspire the younger generations, otherwise I'll run out of artists for Piano Day. Sophie laughed, and Sophia said, so if we want to keep doing this for a long time, we need more people to come forward. So yeah, I hope that's an inspiration for some people to start playing piano. I then agree and say, so keep practicing kids and adults, it doesn't matter what age. I then go on to share some of the other pianists who inspire me, including other local composers and pianists like Rose Rebel and Grace Ferguson, both of whom I've played on this show before. Then if I'm looking at people who I was initially inspired by playing in this contemporary classical way, I'd be thinking about people like Dustin O'Halloran and his music, which I first heard on the Marie Antoinette soundtrack with his opus works all those years ago. Now back to the interview thinking about Jan Tiersen and my favourite album of his being Yusa and that gorgeous layering of nature sound effects from the island that he lives on off the coast of Brittany. Thinking then a little bit more broadly at some of the other artists like Agnes Obel, who also incorporates strings as well as piano and voice, Hideyuku Hashimoto from Japan, Shida Shahabi, uh, we've also got Johan Johansson, the late great Johan Johansson, Icelandic artist Snorri Holgrimsson, who I'm obsessed with at the moment. Of course, Oliver Arnolds, who we've just been talking about as well as Niels Fram, Joette Beving, Ludovico Arnaudi is such a big name, but obviously still a great contributor. The Ukrainian artist Hainali, who is now doing a lot more synth work, but at the beginning was very piano focused. And then also people like Lambert, who I've mentioned as well. And then if I'm thinking also about those who are still working in the more classical traditional genre, who I just love anyway, they would be people like Isata Kane Mason, because she did a great recording of Clara Schumann's work, uh, Alice Sarah Ott and her great album of Debussy and others, other great French works. I think it was called Nightfall. And then Vikinger Olafsson with his Debussy Rameau album, which just opened me up to the idea of Rameau in a way I hadn't expected. So that was my very not comprehensive, but just off the top of my head list of people I have played on this show, I can tell you, and also love. And certainly there's overlap there with your lists as well. So if anyone's listening and they and they don't know where to go to delve into this work, they can either go to the Spotify playlist by Niels for Piano Day. They could go to the two compilation albums, Piano Day Volume 1 and Volume 2, 
And I've also created my own playlist a couple of months ago called Curated Contemporary Classical, which is also up on Spotify and it's on the Triple R Uncommon Sense page for anyone who wants to see some of the works I've played on this show. Just to close out this chat, Sophia, you've got there two great compilation albums and obviously four tracks that have already been released in advance of tomorrow. Could you just tell us what we should expect from the rest of Piano Day Volume 2? That's a Nils project. Um, I was going to actually say earlier on with Piano Day, we all sort of latch on to what our project will be. And Nils always said, you know, I'm not going to be playing live. I want others to do that, but I'll always curate a compilation. And that's that's his project. So, yeah, I wouldn't be able to answer that question, but I'm sure it will be incredible if it's curated by Nils. But we do see we have a list of artists already, so you can check out the list of artists on the Bandcamp page, which tells you all about the different people who've been involved this year. I know Grace Ferguson was on Volume 1, and I played her track from that one, but there's also people like Liam Moore, James Heather featuring Sinemus, Moretti, we've obviously got Jan Tiersen with a very interesting discordant track, and also Ava Waves, Sophia Jani and Caitlin Aurelia Smith. So a whole range of other artists we haven't yet mentioned. Thank you both for taking the time to chat with me about Piano Day and all of the lovely insights, both personal and professional, you've shared with us today. As I said, Piano Day is tomorrow, so people can get involved by checking out the compilation when it comes out, putting your name down on the waiting list. You never know. People might cancel it last minute at Tempo Rubato here in Melbourne. I'm sure we'll be hanging out to see the video from the London event, Sophia, at the National Gallery. Mm -hmm. And, of course, you can also just check out some great piano music yourself and do it informally or even get on the piano so, um, yeah, thank you both, Sophia Ilias, founder of Float and organiser of Piano Day here in Melbourne. And thank you so much, Sophie Hutchings, Australian composer and pianist. Thank you both for joining me today. Thank, oh, no, you. thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having us, Amy. It's my pleasure. Just really enjoyed that chat here with both Sophia Ilias from Float and, as you heard there, organising some amazing events as part of Piano Day and Sophie Hutchings, who's such a talented pianist and composer here in Australia. I'm going to play a piece by Sophie as I, as I promised, and it has promise in the name. It's called Promise of Sun. It was one of Nils's picks for his playlist for Piano Day. So I hope you enjoy this one. You're tuned in to 3RRR. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.